BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. A really big program today. We have Debbie Hines, our political analyst. She's a lawyer who is also a really great reporter. And uh, she's been, you know, carefully tracking the Chauvin trial, which is going on right now. And we will be giving you an update with Debbie Hines on the Chauvin trial. But I wanted to start out with the rant that I just put it up at HartmanReport.com. And I think it's also, it's something that for some reason our media seems just unwilling to say, which is the exact definition of Trumpism. You know, what is Trumpism? If you Google it, or DuckDuckGo it is how I do it, because DuckDuckGo protects your privacy. Wikipedia says it's, quote, a term for the political ideology, style of governance, political movement, and set of mechanisms for acquiring and keeping power that are associated with Donald Trump and his political base. Okay, is that Trumpism? I mean, what do you think Trumpism is? The BBC says Trumpism is, quote, what the president believes on any particular moment, on any particular day, about any particular subject. They're quoting a Republican analyst in that article. The Atlantic argues it's a, quote, populist prototype, a personality cult, or something stranger. I would say Trumpism is really only one thing. We've bounced all over the place over the last five, six years trying to define Trumpism. Oh, does it have to do with, with uh, you know, uh, border security? Or does it have to do with international trade? Or does it have to do with economics? Or does it have to do with, you know, the white middle class? No, Trumpism is really simple. Trumpism is white supremacy. And it's time to just say that. I mean, you know, while white supremacy has been a, in scare quotes, a feature of uh, many movements over the centuries, I mean, you know, from the doctrine of discovery that Columbus used, you know, when, when you sail across the sea, if you encounter people who aren't white, you can simply say, ah, ta-da, you now belong to me, to Nazi-era fascism, right? The Nazis going after the gypsies and the Jews and whatnot. So white supremacy has, you know, been incorporated into a lot of movements, and we see it today incorporated into a lot of organizations and movements within the United States. But it's also its own standalone ideology, the belief that evolutionarily white people are superior to everybody else, which is easily disproved based on genetics, based on, basically based on any kind of, you know, examination you want to do. 1924 in the United States was the peak year for scientific racism in this country, the so-called scientific racism. And, you know, basically since the 70s and 80s, this has just been completely ripped apart. There is no science to support that. We're all just people here. The, the genes that control the, you know, the color of our hair or what our faces look like or the shape of our noses or the color of our skin have nothing to do with anything else. There are some conditions that we have brought from you know, other parts of the world. Sickle cell anemia is probably the most visible that you, know, you can associate with a particular race or Tay-Sachs disease with people who are Jewish or cystic fibrosis with people who are from uh, the Caucasus, white people from that region of Eastern Europe. 
But those have nothing to do with racial superiority or intelligence or physical capability. Nothing. White supremacy is a lie. And it's alive and well in America. And it is at the core of Trumpism. In fact, it is what Trumpism is. Remember when Trump started out, I mean, you know, with birtherism? This was the thing that made Donald Trump famous preparing for the 2016 primary. For the eight years of Barack Obama's presidency, Donald Trump was constantly ranting about how he couldn't be an American. He's not an American. He was born overseas. His followers were proposing all these bizarre theories, many of them still on the internet, that he was a Muslim Trojan horse, you know, brought here from Kenya to infiltrate America and destroy us from within. Right. We call it birtherism. And this was, this was Trump's thing. He was on TV constantly about birtherism. Louise and I were in the room with, with President Obama when he fi- and with Donald Trump when Obama finally took Trump down and released his long-form birth certificate and just ridiculed Trump in front of you know, 300 people. And I, 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 you know, I, Louise and I were sitting just maybe 50 feet from Donald Trump, and I was looking right at him. I mean, he was just slightly angled, but I could see the, the entirety of his face and his hands over his, arms over his chest, kind of holding himself and just angry, angry, angry. It was bizarre. But this has been Donald Trump's life. I mean, he took out a full-page ad in the New York Times calling for the government execution, the death penalty of five young black men for raping and murdering a woman in Central Park, or raped and assaulted, I, I don't recall if she died or not, who was raped and assaulted by another guy. And they, they got the DNA proof. They presented it to this other guy who was already in jail on similar charges, and he was like, yeah, that was me. And they had to release these, these five young men who had been charged in part because of the hysteria that Donald Trump was whipping up. He was all over the media on this thing. And to this day, he's saying those five young black men should have been put to death. He has never walked that back. After all, they must be guilty of something, right? They're black in his mind. I mean, there's literally an entire Wikipedia page devoted to Donald Trump's racist statements. And he learned this at his father's knee. I mean, you know, as a young man working in his dad's real estate empire, Donald and his siblings, when they, when they were working there, one of, their, one of the entry-level jobs, learned the business, was writing the letter C for colored on rental applications from black people so that those people could get that phone call. Oh, I'm so sorry that apartment was just rented. John O'Donnell, who used to be a, a senior executive in Trump's organization, wrote a book called Trumped. And he, he's quoted as saying, you know, it's in his book. Trump said, quote, black guys counting my money? I hate it. The only kind of people I want counting my money are short guys who wear yarmulkes every day. And laziness is a trait in blacks, said Trump. In 89, he, uh, during this whole kerfuffle around affirmative action, and there was a Supreme Court case out of the University of Michigan and all this stuff, Trump said, uh, famously, a well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white in terms of the job market. Right. Like, like Rush Limbaugh, right? I have a little more that I'll share with you after the break. But, and in fact, uh, one of the really interesting things is the whole replacement theory, the great replacement theory. I'll tell you about that after the break. And the 1965 law that gave the GOP its problem. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And if you want the links to each one of these statements and all the details of what I've been sharing with you, it's all over at HartmanReport.com right now. It's free. And welcome back. Glenn in Fall City, Washington. Hey, Glenn, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us, or thanks for listening on KBCS. Hey, so uh, while I wholeheartedly agree with uh, white supremacy being the basis of Trumpism, I feel like a little more comes to it with willful ignorance and 
involuntary ignorance, but the arrogance that comes with that, the inability to know that one is not as great as they think, that kind of leads to white supremacy just by default, but also so many people are just think they're the greatest because they don't have the analysis ability, thanks to, uh, I'd say, thanks to Reagan and the and before and defunding education and just defunding critical thought. I think what you're describing is referred to in psychology as, as I recall, the Kruger-Dunning syndrome, or maybe it's Dunning-Kruger, it's one or the other. And it's where a person literally thinks on any subject, they know better than the experts, they know better than anybody else, they don't have to look up the science, they don't have to document what they're saying, they don't need any, we don't need no stinking sources, I alone know what's right. And uh, I think that very much, Glenn, I think yeah, you can build a very strong case, and, and a number of people have done so over the years, that that's a good description of Donald Trump. And, and, and it's also, I mean, you know, we, it was one of the things that was so, quote, funny about Archie Bunker back in the day, you know, in, in, uh, in Norman Lear's brilliant sitcom. But I'm trying to say that the core of Trumpism is very simply and quite easily explained as white supremacy. Would you accept, Glenn, that a lot of the denial that's going on is not necessarily coming out of Kruger-Dunning syndrome, but really is coming out of an unwillingness by many white people to acknowledge that they're just basically racist asses? I can definitely agree with that, but I, I, I just uh, wonder if they cannot even comprehend that they are racist in the first place because they just are so narrow in their uh, in their mindset and Devin Kruger definitely might be part of that um, but yeah I, I fully agree and I I, w- I also wonder and would love to hear your thoughts on you know Donald Trump's Trumpism what he based his administration on and everything around it and then the how his followers have kind of latched onto that and then different factions. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll continue with that then. Glenn, thank you. Thanks for the question. Thanks for the comments. You know, well said. Okay, back to my back to my rant. The title of my piece today at uh, HartmanReport.com: Trumpism is simply white supremacy, and that's the point that I'm trying to make. Um, in Charlotte, the the Great Replacement theory. This this is this bizarre theory that is adhered to by, for example, the the French right wing party or many people in it. I don't, I'm not sure it's the official position of the party. In fact, I'm sure, quite sure it's not. But um, uh, the Hungarian Fidesz party, you know, Viktor Orban's party. And increasingly in the United States, the Republican Party, and I'll explain the genesis of this in just a second, um, is that people like Jewish billionaire George Soros are funding uh, the promotion of abortion and homosexuality among white people, specifically to reduce white numbers and replace white people with darker skinned people. To replace us, and this and this went viral on Facebook and in other social media in the months before the Charlottesville uh, so-called rally, where Heather Heyer was murdered. And in in that, I believe Heather Heyer was murdered at that rally. Um, and in that, that that is why these guys were chanting Jews will not replace us. They didn't mean Jewish people will not take our jobs. What they meant was a Jewish billionaire, George Soros, is not going to put, you know, is not going to cause black people to replace white people in America by funding things like abortion for white people and birth control. And when you dig into the anti-abortion movement and the anti-birth control movement, you will find the Great Replacement Theory in many of its darkest corners. Not all, obviously, not even the majority of it, but it's there. 
Donald Trump calling African countries s-hole countries. In fact, his actual quote was, why do we want all these people from Africa here? They're s-hole countries. We should have more people from Norway. Right, well, what's the difference? It has to do with the color of their skin. He told, he told the squad to go back where you come from. Right. Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, replied, when, when Trump tells four American congresswomen to go back to their countries, he reaffirms his plan to make America great again, has always been about America, making America white again. So here's where all this started. And I, I could go on with another dozen or, you know, examples, but you know, it's time for the media to stop this. Oh, he's a populist. Oh, he's an authoritarian. No, he's, he's well, yeah, he might, he might be those things, but really at the core, I mean, speaking as, a, as an old white guy, I can tell you every white person, certainly of my age, has at some point in their life known at least one of these fulminating racists. I'm not talking about people like like uh, uh, Nixon or Reagan who made racist jokes. I'm talking about people like Donald Trump who, where, where racism is at, white supremacy is at the core of their personalities. They blame everything on this. And where did this start? Well, it's called the Immigration and Nationality Act in the modern era. Back in 1924, we passed a law saying that People could not, immigrants could not come into this country in greater proportion than they already existed in this country. It was, in other words, if you, if we had, you know, 90% white people in this country, 90% of the immigrants into this country had to be white people. If 8% of the people in this country were black, and I frankly don't know the numbers, but I know 90%, we were about 90% white at that time in 1924. If 8% of the people in the United States are black, then only 8% of immigrants can come in who have black skin, right? We passed that law in 1924. LBJ overturned it in 1965 with the Immigration and Nationality Act. And he said, and I quote, Oh, no, excuse me. And he, and he said at the time that, you know, this is not a revolutionary bill. He said, this bill that we signed today, this is LBJ, is not a revolutionary bill. Well, in fact, it turned out it was. And as uh, Senator Sam Irvin, a Democrat from North Carolina, said, quote, the people of Ethiopia have the same right to come to the United States under this bill as the people from England, the people of France, the people of Germany, and the people with Holland. With all due respect to Ethiopia, I don't know of any contributions that Ethiopia has made to the making of America. Right. So that's, you know, that, that I think is, is like one of the, and so now we're, we're at, uh, what, 59% white people in the United States? It's gonna go below 50% in about uh, 20 years? you know, of the adult population. More children are being born to people who are not white than to people who are white. And the Republican Party is, which is, you know, has declared itself since, particularly since Trump's presidency. But, you know, I mean, Reagan was willing to use race to get elected. George Herbert Walker Bush was willing to use race to get elected. Remember the Willie Horton ads? And certainly Donald Trump. I mean, he started his campaign with Mexicans are rapists and criminals. His two signature accomplishments, giving billionaires, mostly white billionaires, according to Forbes magazine, a giant, a trillion dollar tax cut and keeping brown skinned people from our southern border. So do you think I'm missing something here or does this comport with your experience or understanding or friends? To the Tom Hartman program. I mean, do you find that your Trump-supporting neighbors or co-workers or even friends are saying anything other than this white supremacy? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. 
Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is uh, by Joy Ann Reed. It's titled The Man Who Sold America. This is from the introduction titled Welcome to Gotham. To truly understand Donald Trump, you need to have lived in New York City in the 1980s and 90s when his businesses and marital escapades were a tabloid staple. Or maybe you just need to have grown up on Batman. Gotham City, which the brooding billionaire Bruce Wayne polices as his vigilante alter ego, is an exaggerated dystopian send-up of old New York. It's filled with over-the-top villains who, like Batman, possess no actual superpowers, but get by on their cleverness, their ostentatious wealth, and their ability to wreak havoc on the urban landscape. Donald Trump seems ripped right out of that comic book supervillain universe. With his cantilever hairstyle, weirdly long signature neckties, bizarre syntax, and penchant for slapping his surname on anything he's connected with, from buildings and golf courses to bottled water board games, and for a time a sham university that promised anyone could learn to be just like the Donald, Trump and the cast of characters surrounding him could fit right in with Joker, Riddler, Penguin, and Lex Luthor. Trump has existed on the outskirts of American celebrity and popular culture for the lifespans of most Americans under the age of 40. He made cameos in movies like Home Alone 2 and on TV shows such as The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He was in the guest chair on The Phil Donahue Show and The Oprah Winfrey Show, and he performed mock fights with World Wrestling Entertainment Chairman Vince McMahon on multiple episodes of WrestleMania. He even pretended to buy WWE's lucrative Monday Night Raw franchise in an elaborate ruse in 2009, which tanked the entertainment company's stock price, prompting Trump to quickly pretend to sell it back for twice the price. Despite his history of housing discrimination against black tenants and his full ad in the 1980s, full page ad in the 1980s calling for a group of black and brown teenagers to be put to death for, the, for a gang rape they didn't commit, Trump managed to work his way into popular mainstream, mainstream popular culture. Early on, he was a tabloid-friendly rogue and celebrity hanger-on, and later the king of the B-list stars who jockeyed for his approval on Celebrity Apprentice. Had he not signed on to the racist birther conspiracy claiming that America's first black president, Barack Obama, was not born in the United States, and plunged headfirst into the morass of anti-immigrant xenophobia that helped him win the presidency, the old Donald Trump might have carried on. He may have remained a cultural gadfly, that peculiar brand of celebrity whose views on everything from geopolitics to the Oscars are sought out for no particular reason other than that he is famous and quotable. But Donald Trump did become president, and so here we are. As a candidate, Trump offered Republicans the taste of the celebrity status that Ronald Reagan had given them, something normally reserved for Democrats. That's what attracted Sam Nunberg, the 38-year-old political advisor who toiled on Trump's warm-up attempts at a presidential runs and on the real presidential deal until he lost a war with Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski and was fired in the summer of 2015. Nunberg says Lewandowski saw to it that old racist posts on his Facebook page surfaced. He later apologized for those posts. And though Nunberg readily says that Trump screwed him, he claims he'd vote for him again in 2020 because Trump has delivered on Republican policies and judicial nominations. I knew our campaign wasn't doing well when I went into our restaurant after he announced, Nunberg said. The TV was on CNN and he was on and people were watching. These were people who normally wouldn't give a S word, but they were watching him. Trump wasn't just another politician doing a TV hit. He was an American mogul, an entertainer, Nunberg said. And he wasn't rich from making microchips or selling stocks. It was from building, construction. It was this image of success, of him being rich and he can make you rich. We were the WWE, Fox News version of the Obama campaign in the beginning, and I mean that as a compliment. It was aspirational. It was, we can fight the system. Nunberg was raised on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and nurtured on conservative talk radios, strident support for Israel and suspicion of the Middle East. 
After volunteering for Mitt Romney's 2008 campaign, he worked for right-wing lawyer Jay Sekulow during the 2010 fight to prevent the construction of a mosque near Ground Zero, the site of 9-11. He says Trump wrote a BS letter at the time offering to buy the land where the mosque was to be built, but the offer was just a PR stunt. Nunberg's parents were lawyers, and so he became one too. His father had worked for a law firm that Trump and his father had used for real estate deals. But Nunberg didn't meet Trump in person until he was introduced to him in 2010 by yet another Gotham City character, Roger Stone, the villain with the Richard Nixon tattoo on his back. I wanted to win a national election and thought Trump could win, Nunberg says of his eagerness to sign on. I thought it was cool that Obama went on the late night shows. I thought the John McCain ad showing Obama speaking to millions of people and showing Paris Hilton slamming him as a Hollywood celebrity was the dumbest effing thing I'd ever seen. He all but screamed at the time, you just won him millions of votes. Nunberg thought his party was living in the 1950s. And though Trump was his own version of the madman era, to Nunberg, he was a madman for the 21st century. He and Trump shared a sensibility. He likens to a retired New York City firefighter or cop who mainlines Fox News, plus Rush Limbaugh and Mike Levin on talk radio, and thinks to himself, this country has gone to crap, and we need a guy in the White House who's willing to punch a few holes in the wall. It's Joanne Reed's book, The Man Who Sold America. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Back to the issue here. Is Trumpism merely white supremacy or is this something more complicated than that? And then the larger question, what is the Republican Party doing about this? Right? It appears to me that the GOP danced with racism, you know, from Reagan making his first official speech after he was nominated as uh, the presidential candidate for the GOP down near Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Schwarmer and uh, Cheney and Goodman were murdered, the three civil rights workers, and talking about states' rights to an all-white crowd. Donald Trump Jr. tried to recreate that. He, his first political speech was in the exact same place, the, the same county fair in the same place place. And he even invoked the name of Reagan. He said, I'm so pleased to be here. It's the same place Reagan gave his first speech, right, to an all-white crowd, right, right, you know, down the road from where they brutally tortured and murdered three civil rights workers. So Reagan danced with racism. His vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was, you know, part of that kind of billionaire New England uh, uh, wasp group who kind of looked their, down their nose at, at Southern racists, you know, people like you know, Strom Thurmond. He wouldn't have come right out and said he was a race. In fact, I doubt he ever even used the N-word. He was, he was so refined. But he was more than willing to run the Willie Horton ad and take down Michael Dukakis for having let a black guy out of prison a program that was started by the Republican governor before Michael Dukakis, but Bush blamed it on Dukakis. And, you know, scary black man on TV, Dukakis. I mean, that was basically the ad, right? So Bush the elder was more than willing to use racism. Bush Jr. decided instead of using racism in 2004, and you can look this up. I, I actually had forgotten it until I, you know, I was doing research for this op-ed on this topic of you know, racism and politics. And, and what I discovered was that in 2004, what Bush Jr. used to get himself reelected, the cultural issue wasn't race, it was gender. Now, it was more, more specifically, it was uh, anti-gay bias or hatred. He was just fanning the flames. Oh my God, gay people are going to get married and it's going to be the end of the American family and, and, and they're going to evangelize your children. I mean, that was the message that came out of the Bush campaign in 2004. So they moved from, you know, bashing black people to bashing gay people. But, you know, hey, it's at the very least still white male cis supremacy. And then, of course, Donald Trump kicked off his presidential campaign with Mexican rapists, murderers, and thugs are coming to America. What else do you call this? Anyhow, let's pick up your calls and get your thoughts on this. David in North Miami, Florida. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Greetings, Professor. What say um, you, I, I, I should say? 
Archie Bunker's yeah. a bad example. At least he was a war veteran, even if he didn't understand how much he benefited. I right. say That's true. that Trumpists are nostalgic for that narrow time when Plessy v. Ferguson became, you know, starry decisis, and mm-hmm. but before the income tax of 1913, and heaven forbid the Federal Reserve, because we have to rely on self-made men like J.P. Morgan for our money. So that's part yeah. of the problem. I, I don't see the Federal Reserve having anything to do with this at all, David. But I, but well, I do I, agree with you that they are nostalgic for that time prior to the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act when America was almost entirely, I mean, you know, in the neighborhood of 85 to 90% white. That decrease, I mean, 13% of Americans right now are, are immigrants. I've got the exact numbers around here someplace. I'm not sure exactly where, so I'm not gonna go looking for them. But immigration has enormously uh, increase the number of people of color in the United States. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why the GOP, why conservatives are all hysterical about immigration. Oh, my God, you're going to let more brown people in? You're going to let more black people? We can't have that. No, we can't have that. Morris in Long Beach, California. Morris, your thoughts on all this? Uh, I believe this, Professor. Uh, this is nothing new, old playbook. Um, you know, Donald Trump represents white nationalism. Now, remember I said about a week ago, white nationalism, supersedes democracy, meritocracy, and obedience to law. And we shouldn't be upset at all these folks that are rolling with Donald Trump because he gives them something to hang their hat on. He, he makes them feel good about themselves. And, and that's, that's important. He reminds me of a guy named Lee Atwater. I know you know the name Lee Atwater. He showed the Republican Party how to employ the vernacular to subliminally mobilize people. But that's what's going on. And I think what's really exacerbated racism in this country, because it's always been here, it's been coded in our law in the late 1600s, Professor, you've written about it, you know about it. But what's really made it difficult in this country is the economic situation. When, when Righteous Ronnie dropped that tax code, uh, tax uh, responsibilities from corporations from that 75 to that 28 that was it because that took away your middle class there's no more money circulating anymore and the federal government doesn't have any money to do some of the things that it did before so people get frustrated they get flustered so they're looking for a place uh, they're looking for a toilet and donald trump gives them places to, to, to you know to relieve themselves immigrants blacks whatever it's all subliminal but i think if you did something economically we still would have uh, race conscious americans but we, but we wouldn't have as many racist americans that's just my take yeah, yeah, I, I I think you're right, Morris, and 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 to to well, Morris just hung up. Uh, to to Morris's question, you know, is this white nationalism or is this white supremacy? I would ask the question: Is white nationalism not simply a political form, you know, applied to the whole nation, of white supremacy, or is white supremacy subordinate to white nationalism? I I am not sure. I could strongly argue. Well, I, I think white supremacy is at the top of that, but uh, Diane in Hazelcrest, Illinois. Your thoughts, Diane? Hi, Tom. I totally agree that Trumpism is white supremacy. However, there are many whites that wholeheartedly supported him and still would and would swear that's not the case because they have one or two black friends or acquaintances. They may be able to tolerate a few of us, Yet they have no problem supporting all of the white supremacy policies that Trumpism reflects. And this leads me to believe that these people aren't sure what racism is. There are blacks who support Trump and and Latinos also. And how can they be white supremacists? I firmly believe the GOP are nothing but white supremacists, which is why I don't get black Republicans. And I've been trying to well, convince a, uh, a relatively intelligent friend of mine that all Trump supporters are racist, and she vehemently disagrees. Please help me. Yeah. I'm wondering if, if you define white supremacy as the belief that white people are genetically superior 
and then the corollary to that, that that you just keep it to that very simple definition and then all these corollaries that therefore white people should run the world therefore white you know America if it's to be a great country has to have a majority of white people therefore white people should have all positions of power therefore they should run government and they should run you know etc you know Brian Kemp and everybody else if you define it that way you don't have to be white to believe that okay do you think that that's possible that the black people you know who are Trump supporters are infected with that belief that at some level they actually believe that white people are superior? I just think they're stupid. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm with you, Diane. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to over intellectualize this thing and you, you just boil it right down. <laughs> Diane, thank you so much. I got to run. Thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. I do appreciate it. Alan in Carson City, Nevada. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. Yeah, I had a question that was kind of a technical question. When you, uh, why this birther thing would have ever come up, because I don't know how it works on a federal level, but here in Nevada, I had a friend of mine run for governor under the name Rhinestone Cowboy, which was actually legal. You could use a fictitious name. But he had to, you know, do a filing fee and fill out an application. So in advance, they would check all your qualifications here. So once you became an official candidate, you know, it was verified. And I just don't right. know how it worked on a national level. You know, well, there, there was there was never any doubt that Donald, excuse me, that Barack Obama, that President Obama was born in Hawaii. You know, I mean, his father was from Kenya. His father was, a, you know, an exchange student and and then left his mother and went back to Kenya. Um, and he was raised by his white mother. But, um, he, he, you know, I, no, but no serious person ever doubted that, including the, the Republican Party. Until this birtherism thing took on a life, well, it didn't take on a life of its own. It was pumped by people like Jerome Corsi, you know, publishing a book about it. And then it became the, the, the crazed right wing. And then the crazed right wing filtered into Fox News. And then Fox News filtered into right wing hate radio. And then it became a thing that Republicans started, oh, well, really, where is his birth certificate? Um, and it was really all just a way of saying, He's different. Have you noticed that? There's something different about this man in the White House. Every other president looks different than this guy. What's going on? There must be something weird going on here. Don't you think that that was really the text and the subtext, Alan? Yeah, I think people uh, need to take responsibility and do a little research when they hear these stories. And they don't when they listen to Fox News and that right-wing hate radio stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I can, I can, I, you can build a case that you know nobody ever asked JFK for his birth certificate because we all know who his father was, but I'm oh, not sure. sure you could say that about Hubert Humphrey. I'm not, you know, I mean, who, who was his father? Who knows, right? Uh, you know, or, 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 you know, maybe Jimmy Carter. I, you know, I, I, there, there's been no shortage of candidates that we didn't know anything about until they came on. The, you know, Tim, Tim Kaine, who ran with with uh, Hillary Clinton. I still don't know anything about Tim Kaine, other than that he's the senator from Virginia. I mean, you know, it's like, ew, well, and, but nobody ever asked for their birth certificate because they're white people. And, and, you know, and that's the thing that, that keeps getting missed. And I think it's, it's just, uh, A, I think it's a shame. But, but beyond that, I think what it proves is that birtherism was nothing more than a way for white people in code to say to each other, this guy is black. He's in the White House, a black man. That should not be. I, I really think that that was the message of birtherism, Alan. Yeah, I, I came through the Mexican border once here into the States, and uh, all they asked me was where I was born. And I made a joke, like I said, uh, well, I guess I look American enough. And a guy got all incensed about it and said, oh, no, that's not it. you know. And I thought, well, maybe it, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's I've been asked that question going through the both the Canadian and the Mexican border. 
And uh, I think that's because you don't have to present a passport, or at least it used to be the case. Yeah. Um, so they were just trying to trying to confirm citizenship with a simple question. But uh, Alan, I got to run. Thank you for the call. It's good to hear from you. It's coming up on 10 minutes before the hour. We will be back in just one minute. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman uh, radio and television program, the place where smart people get their news. What is truly animating the GOP these days? And will it stick? Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's check in with our, our friend Debbie Hines, a trial lawyer, legal political commentator, former prosecutor. In fact, she was the assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland earlier in her career. Our website is I am Debbie. It's uh, D-E-B-B-I-E Hines, H-I-N-E-S dot com. And uh, that's also her Twitter, Twitter handle. I am Debbie Hines. And uh, Debbie, welcome back. I'm wondering why so many people uh, in the media are saying that it's normal police procedure to kneel on someone's neck for nine and a half minutes. I'm, I'm confused by that. You know, I'm kind of confused by that, too. I mean, there's nothing normal about that, and particularly in this case with George Floyd, where he was not resisting arrest, he was not moving, he was completely pinned down prone. And if you've listened to any of the law enforcement, the police officers, uh, like Chief, former Chief Ramsey, uh, who used to be chief in D.C., you know, they said that there was no threat, that the police are allowed to use some type of reasonable force, but in the case of Mr. Floyd, he wasn't doing anything to cause the use of force, and not definitely not for now that we know it's nine minutes and 29, um, nine minutes and 29 seconds, which, you know, comes out to be 569 seconds that he had him pinned down in that way. Yeah, and uh, just try holding your breath for even half that length. It ain't possible. Um, uh, Debbie, so right. what's, what's happened in the trial today? What, bring us up to date. It's really interesting because um, before the trial began, I mean, I had my doubts, which there really shouldn't be any doubts based on the evidence that, you know, is presented just even on what everyone has seen with the video, but you can't just show, the prosecution can't just show the video and sit down and say, you know, it's a wrap. They have to put forth um, evidence. So I think we have a little bit of where we're going and actually putting the witnesses with the video, I think is absolutely compelling. So starting really with the last witness that was on just before the lunch break, they're on the lunch break right now, is a minor, so we don't know her name. They're only using her initials and not showing her face to uh, to the public, um, but she's obviously in court and everyone in the jury, and it's important, can see her. And she's a young woman who's 18 now, and she took the video last year on May 25th. And, um, you know, it's just compelling what she said. I mean, she said that she's not the type of person to want to put herself out there. Her video has gone viral, and she said she wasn't that type of person to want to have the spotlight in any way, but she felt that she had to do it based on everything that was shown in the video. And the interesting thing that she said, which is where we closed before lunch today, uh, the defense made a mistake with her, and they asked her, um, you know, how did she... Um, 
they tried to act, you know, but she was the one that showed the video and trying to get a response from her about it being viral and her feeling good about that. And on redirect, she was asked, how did she feel? And what she said was, you know, George Floyd could have been her father, her brother, her cousins, her uncle, because she's black, anyone in her family. And the sad part was when she said that every night she goes to bed, she apologizes to George Floyd for not doing more to save his life. But she said it wasn't for me to do. It was for Chauvin to do. That's where we left off at lunchtime. Oh my God! What a so what that's a heavy... pretty yeah that's that's very you know and that's just so compelling because you can feel the emotions from the witnesses from what they went through what they went mm-hmm. through by watching a man right. die as well as the other witness the uh, one before her was Donald Wilson who was MMA um, mixed martial arts um, fighter who watched everything and. Uh, you know, he basically said that at the end, he called 911, and he was at the, the police were on the scene. Why did you call 911? He said, I called the police on the police because I didn't trust the police that were there because they had no humanity. Yeah. Now, I, I understand that uh, George Floyd was actually put in the back of the police car, handcuffed with his hands behind his back, handcuffed, put in the back of the police car, uh, totally contained at that point. And then the cops decided to drag him out of the car, throw him on the ground, and Derek Chauvin did this thing for nine and a half minutes, nine minutes, 29 seconds. Um, is, you know, you're a former prosecutor. Uh, isn't that the sort of thing, doesn't that seem like at, some, at, a, at that point, uh, Chauvin and his buddies had made the decision, we're gonna kill this man. Or we're gonna yeah, at least punish him. Not, yeah. That's the reason why I felt, as a former prosecutor, that there was more than enough for the prosecutor, Keith Ellison, uh, to bring um, first-degree murder charges because he was in the car. They could have just have taken him away. He was handcuffed, but for whatever reason, which we don't know the reason on Chauvin's part, we could only speculate, they took him out of the car and then have him prone down in a chokehold for nine minutes and 29 seconds, uh, which ultimately killed him, even to the point of when he was unconscious, when the, uh, you know, when firefighters on the scene that were just bystanders asked, could you check his pulse? Because it was apparent that he had no pulse at that time, whether he was unconscious or dead or not, and they wouldn't do it. So it was clear from just looking at it that he, Chauvin, intended to do serious bodily harm to George Floyd. Yeah. It was his heart that failed, right? This is the, the ultimate, quote, cause of death. Well, that depends on which autopsy report you go with. So the uh, uh-huh. the um, the county prosecutor's report said, yes, his heart failed as a result, you know, complicating of, in essence, the officer's uh, knee on him. But the independent right. prosecutor's report Great said, shot. no, it was from exactly what we saw. You know, he was basically strangled to death. Yeah. Yeah, remarkable. Debbie Hines, uh, her website, IamDebbieHines.com, and also her Twitter handle. Debbie, thanks so much for dropping by. I, I really you, look Tom. forward thank to these you. reports from you. Thank you. It's great talking thank to you. Thank you. Take care. And, uh, Same here. Yep. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Tabitha in Riverside, California. Hey, Tabitha, what's on your mind? Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I wanted to talk uh, about Israel because mm-hmm. whenever I do hear it brought up, it's like always uh, something against Israel. But uh, from all my knowledge of Israel, these people would love to live in peace with those around them. But the um, people in the PLO do not recognize them to this day as a state. And they really have to live on the defensive and offensive because people there are people who to this day want to take israel out they don't believe they have a right there and that's why they have to be overly cautious it's not that they hate anybody they would love in fact arabs and christians they they all live there the peaceful ones can live in there and they would love to open up but there is a a strain of people who want to take and would take Israel out, and to this day they get bombed, 
They have uh, uh, bomb shelters there, and uh, that's why they have to retaliate and live on the defense. And I just wanted to say that, that they do have a right to be there. It's been established officially, and unfortunately to this day, they have to live protecting themselves. And that's what I wanted to say. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying, Tabitha. And, you know, I spent a fair amount of time in Israel back in the 70s and 80s. I haven't been there in a decade or more. But back then, you could, uh, in fact, I did frequently drive all the way from Jericho in the south, all the way up to through Jerusalem, through the central part, right up to Nazareth and, and on up, right up to the Sea of Galilee, the sea, the small sea where you know Jesus was supposed to have walked on the waters. In fact, our friends who lived there were living on the second floor of a house that was owned by an Arab family. And people were interacting fairly well. That is not the case anymore. The uh, series of right-wing governments, the Netanyahu government being the most recent, have basically turned Israel into an apartheid state with this massive partitioning internally in Israel. And then the basically, you know, a three million person prison camp. I believe there's three million people in Gaza. I might be wrong on the number, but whatever it is, this, this Gaza has basically been turned into a prison camp. And there's a robust discussion about this in Israel. And there is a progressive media there. If you read Haaretz, H-A-A-R-A-T-A-R-E-T-Z, I believe it is, they have a mm-hmm. website. You can read the newspaper, the left-wing newspaper, or you can read the Jerusalem Post, you know, which is more of a right-wing newspaper. Shelley Adelson used to fund, he's dead now, he may still be funding it, an extremely right-wing anti-Arab newspaper that was given away for free all over Israel that was just kind of feeding this frenzy. You've got two political parties that Netanyahu has formed a coalition with that are both essentially in favor of just expelling all Arabs from Israel, period, end of discussion. And the country is facing some really serious challenges as the Arab population grows. One thing we know uh, that, according to the Bible, God's always going to protect it, not that it's always right, but... Yeah. Well, you know, maybe. <laughs> you know, I, I really, I, know, I, I, I hope for the best for Israel. You know, know it I, has I, as problems, I said. But it yeah. is, I don't want to get too biblical here, but, you know, I can't argue with God. We're creatures. God is the creator, and Israel is his country, and the Antichrist is going to go there and all that. So it yeah. gets involved. Okay. But I just feel for Israel because they do have to be on the defense. God bless you, I Tom, get it, and all your listeners. Thank you, and back at you, Tabitha. I'll take all the blessings I can get, and we'll just leave that there. Steve in St. Genevieve, Missouri. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I'd like to uh, comment on the the wage increase. Um, mm-hmm. I heard that if we raise the minimum wage, the price of the products are going to go up. I did a little bit of investigating myself in the metropolitan St. Louis area. Went to a poor neighborhood McDonald's. Got me a quarter pounder with cheese combo, then went to a wealthy part of St. Louis, got the same thing. The difference between the two was 22 cents. Now, when I was purchasing both of these in these separate McDonald franchises, I asked the manager, what's the starting wage? Well, it's seven twenty-five in the poor neighborhood. It's $15 in the wealthy neighborhood. Now... Uh, The only thing I can think of is since it's a franchise, I believe they get to set their own wage, the starting wage. I don't know. What say you? I don't know. I'm surprised that it wasn't more expensive in the poor neighborhood and less expensive in the wealthy neighborhood. That's typically how it works. That's how it works with supermarkets. Well, there's food deserts. I went to the food desert part of St. Louis, and the McDonald's was cheaper. Well, it may be. And, and, you know, if everything that you said is true, Steve, then the difference was 22 cents, you said? That is correct. It had nothing to do with a coupon to make it cheaper. No, I get all that. I get all that. And, and, you know, I thought McDonald's standardized their prices across the country. Apparently they don't, if everything you're saying is true. But I would be glad to pay 22 cents more for a veggie burger at McDonald's. And, yes, they're offering them now if that meant that everybody working there was being paid 15 bucks an hour. And I don't think that it would have an inflationary impact. Steve, thank you for the call. Again, let me qualify this by saying if everything Steve said is true, because people call in all the time and throw numbers out, and it's like, I can't verify that. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Here on the Tom Hartman program, exposing the con in conservative 
stick around. book today we're reading from elon papp's book the ethnic cleansing of palestine this is from the preface it's titled the red house the red house was a typical early tel avivian building the pride of the jewish builders and craftsmen who toiled over the 1920s it had been designed to house the head office of the local workers council it remained such until toward the end of 1947 it became the headquarters of the haganah the main zionist underground militia in palestine Located near the sea on Yarkon Street in the northern part of Tel Aviv, the building formed another fine addition to the first Hebrew city on the Mediterranean, the White City as its literati and pundits affectionately called it. For in those days, unlike today, the immaculate whiteness of his houses still bathed the town as a whole in the opulent brightness so typical of Mediterranean port cities of that era and that region. It was a sight for sore eyes, elegantly fusing Bauhaus motifs with native Palestinian architecture in an admixture that was called Levantine, in the least derogatory sense of the term. Such, too, was the Red House, its simple rectangular features graced with frontal arches that framed the entrance and supported the balconies of its two upper stories. It was either its association with the workers' movement that had inspired the adjective red, or its pinkish tinge that it acquired during sunset that had given the house its name. The former was more fitting as the building continued to be associated with the Zionist version of socialism when, in the 1970s, it became the main office for Israel's kibbutzim movement. Houses like this, important historical remnants of the mandatory period, prompted UNESCO in 2003 to designate Tel Aviv as a World Heritage Site. Today, the house is no longer there, a victim of development, which has raised this architectural relic to the ground to make room for a car park next to the new Sheraton Hotel. Thus, in this street, too, no trace is left of the white city, which it has slowly transmogrified into the sprawling, polluted, extravagant metropolis that is the modern Tel Aviv. In this building on a cold Wednesday afternoon, 10 March 1948, a group of 11 men, veteran Zionist leaders, together with young military Jewish officers, put the final touches on a plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. That same evening, military orders were dispatched to the units on the ground to prepare for the systematic expulsion of Palestinians from vast areas of the country. The orders came from a detailed description of the methods to be employed to forcibly evict the people. Large-scale intimidation, laying siege to and bombarding villages and population centers, setting fire to homes, properties, goods, expulsion, demolition, and finally planting mines among the rubble to prevent any of the expelled inhabitants from returning. Each unit was issued with its own list of villages and neighborhoods as the targets of the master plan. Codename Plan D, Dalit in Hebrew, this was the fourth and final version of less substantial plans that outlined the fate the Zionists had in store for Palestine and consequently for its native population. The previous three schemes had articulated only obscurely how the Zionist leadership contemplated dealing with the presence of so many Palestinians living in the land that the Jewish national movement coveted as its own. This fourth and last blueprint spelled it out clearly and unambiguously, quote, the Palestinians have to go, end quote. In the words of one of the first historians to note the significance of that plan, Simcha Flappen, the military campaign against the Arabs, including the conquest and destruction of the rural areas, was set forth in the Haganah's plan to let. The aim for the plan was, in fact, the destruction of both the rural and urban areas of Palestine. As the first chapters of this book will attempt to show, this plan was both the inevitable product of the Zionist ideological impulse to have an exclusively Jewish presence in Palestine, and a response to developments on the ground once the British cabinet had decided to end the mandate. Clashes with local Palestinian militias provided the perfect context and pretext for implementing the ideological vision of an ethnically cleansed Palestine. The Zionist policy was first based on retaliation against Palestinian attacks in February of 1947, and it transformed into an initiative to ethnically cleanse the country as a whole in March of 1948. Once the decision was taken, it took six months to complete the mission. When it was over, more than half of Palestine's native population, close to 800,000 people, had been uprooted. 531 villages had been destroyed, and 11 urban neighborhoods had been emptied of their inhabitants. The plan decided upon on 10 March 1948, and above all its systematic implementation in the following months, was a clear-cut case of ethnic cleansing operation regarded under international law today as a crime against humanity. After the Holocaust, it has become impossible to conceal large-scale crimes against humanity. 
Our modern communication-driven world, especially since the upsurge of electronic media, no longer allows human-made catastrophes to remain hidden from the public eye or to be denied. And yet one such crime has been erased almost totally from the global public memory, the disposition of the Palestinians in 1948 by Israel. This, the most formative element in the modern history of the land of Palestine, has ever since been systematically denied and is still today not recognized as an historical fact, let alone acknowledged as a crime that needs to be confronted politically as well as morally. Ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity, and the people who perpetrate it today are considered criminals to be brought before special tribunals. It may be difficult to decide how one ought to refer to or deal with in the legal sphere those who initiated and perpetrated ethnic cleansing in Palestine in 1948, but it's impossible to reconstruct their crimes. Anyhow, it continues the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Noah in Muncie, Indiana. Hey, hey Noah, we have uh, one minute to the end of the show today. Hi, Tom. First time caller. My question pertains to ageism and the growing rise of that as a problem in America. I'm a millennial. I'm a teacher. I'm a writer. In 2016, I warned my colleagues about revenge voting, and they didn't believe me, but in tw- by 2020, they did. And then we have... uh, have No, forgive the interruption, but it's the end of the show. This is a a great topic, and I'd love to talk to you about it in more depth. If you could please call back. I'm sorry that it's not a good topic for just just to slam something out. Noah, thank you very much for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, and Jay LeBlanc, the folks who help make this program work every single day. And thank you to you for sharing a good word about us with your friends. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 